Um, as John Mark said, I'm going to be talking about worship. I love that you guys are kind of coming to the end of the Sabbath series because I think worship and Sabbath do really have this kind of beautiful symbiotic relationship almost. They interact with each other. They challenge similar things um, inside of us. And I think there's just a beautiful symmetry about these two conversations, worship and Sabbath. And hopefully some of that will even become clear as we unpackage it together. Now, in terms of worship, it is something I am passionate about. I lead worship. Uh, it is something I've also wrestled through over the years. Um, I think it's particularly challenging in our day and age to really engage with worship, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that is. But my sense is that worship, and I really want to focus on um, our, our kind of worship as singing, reading of psalms, um, singing of hymns, uh, but these aspects of our worship deserve deeper understanding, a deeper clarity. Why do they matter? What is it about this space when we come together and we engage in something as simple? And, and let's be honest, sometimes it feels insignificant as a song. Why is God so insistent that his people be a people who know how to worship? Because remember, he doesn't need it. God doesn't have what I like to think of as Tinkerbell syndrome. In the morning service, all the kids were in and there was like a general chuckle amongst the children. Um, but if you remember in Peter Pan, Tinkerbell has to be believed in or she starts to die. God isn't like that. He doesn't need to be reminded that he is worthy. He doesn't need to be reminded that he is holy, that he is majestic. So why do we sing? Well, friends, because we need to be reminded. We are the creatures who were created for worship and yet so often we can forget that. Now for many of us today, um, and I can slip into this, I think our practical understanding, not on a theological level, but in a terms of our practice of worship, we swing between two extremes on the pendulum. So on one side, we have worship in practice is kind of the three songs before um, or after the message, the kind of like uppers and downers of the corporate Christian experience. You know, it's like the ramp up and then the cool down. Or we swing to this side and we talk about worship as our whole life. Now, both of these things are true. But when we only see worship in those two extremes, one is reductionary on its own. One feels generic and almost uh, vague and sometimes almost asinine. And so we, we, we begin to lose the depth and the breadth of what worship can be in the space between those two polar sides. And so my invitation to us this evening is that we reacquaint ourselves, we relearn together what it is we talk about, what it is we think about when we think about and when we talk about worship. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I want to address a few cultural realities that make worship particularly challenging in our day and age. And here's why. Because we live in, I like to think of it as like a vortex. Like we are being constantly sucked into the cultures of this world. And I want us to be aware of the possible um, internal resistances within us when we talk about the posture and the practice <clears throat> of worship. 
And then secondly, we'll look at kind of the ways in which worship combats those cultural realities, as well as the powerful means, something as simple as singing, something as simple as reading the Psalms, those things offer us as a way to engage with God in praise. Sound good? Okay. So first in our cultural comments, and I don't think this will come as a surprise to any of you, but we live in an age of entertainment, right? Um, In LA, they've started putting up these billboards that are like movies on a billboard. And now there's this whole lawsuit about whether they should be allowed because it's essentially like a TV show on the side of a freeway when you're driving. Um, But it's this perfect picture of the fact that we are surrounded by uh, entertainment. And then you have things like Netflix, Instagram, Twitter, then the news, politics right now. It is just like a wash with chaos and entertainment. Even NPR, sometimes I just put on the radio because I want to be distracted. And you know what's so great about entertainment, okay, what we love about it, is that it offers us these kind of pseudo experiences from the comfort and safety of our couch, or in our case, our cars. Um, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to change anything about myself, but I get to feel this excitement, this intrigue, this kind of emotional thrill of whatever it is that is entertaining me at that given moment. But the downside of entertainment is that it's inert. It's passive by nature. Neil Postman, in his, I think, a prophetic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he talks about this inherent passivity of entertainment. And he says that it gives us something to talk about, but it cannot lead to any meaningful action. That's what entertainment is. And let's be honest, that's why we love it. So I can listen to the radio and I can feel really up to date about politics and the things that are going on in my state. Um, And yet what the stats tell us is that most people don't show up to vote, but we know what's going on, right? Or um, you can get you, I can get, um, really into Extraordinary Homes on Netflix. Anyone seen that show? It's like these immaculately architectured um, houses all over the world, and they're these minimal structures that engage with the, they're beautiful. And I can spend a Saturday watching this show to avoid cleaning my own two-bedroom apartment, right? You You see the disconnect? Or I can show up on a Sunday, and I can listen to a message about forgiveness, and I can feel a walk with the reality that I am forgiven. And yet all the while I am holding on so tightly to the bitterness I have towards a spouse or a family member or a friend. Because in an entertainment economy, I have been conditioned to consume and then I leave. No action is required. And so this cycle begins in us where entertainment offers distraction without involvement or investment. And if I'm not invested, then more often than not, I become quite apathetic and disconnected. And ultimately, that disconnection produces a cynicism within me about whatever is entertaining me at any given moment. And this cycle, friends, it slips into the church so easily. Which leads to my kind of second cultural comment, because in addition to an age of entertainment, we live under this pervasive spirit of skepticism. Dallas Willard, who I believe you're familiar with. Yeah, I got a laugh at the first one, and I just thought I have to do it again. (laughs) 
John Mark slash Dallas Willard. But he writes that we live, <laughs> we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. And in a place like Portland, I'm sure this is especially true, Right? Now, there is a place for honest wrestling and doubt, hear me, but skepticism as we see it today in our culture, this kind of cynical distrust of everything and everyone, most often manifests out of a need to defend our individuality and a way of avoiding dealing with our insecurities. But the problem with skepticism in our hyper-intellectual modern world, is that when it seeps into the church, it leaves very little room for wonder, for hope, for faith, for joy, for the possibility, I wonder what God is going to do tonight. And I want us to be aware of these two things because both entertainment and skepticism within our culture are so destructive to biblical worship. They center on the self, they are passive, and they are far removed from the call of Jesus in Mark 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And yet that is the very epicenter of what you and I are called into when we come into worship. Heart, soul, mind, body, in abandoned and sometimes undignified adoration and praise. And so we walk in on a Sunday night and we feel the irreconcilable nature of things within us and they clash so perfectly in worship. We want to encounter God, but we are conditioned to just be entertained. We want to believe. We want to have faith, but we are suspicious of anyone who seems too eager. And we find ourselves, I think, in the church at this day and age at a crossroads, friends. Will we be people who give ourselves to the biblical practice of worship, heart, soul, mind, body? Or, will, or do we simply just really want kind of better programs, bigger bands, brighter light, cooler effects? Because we want this church experience to cover up our inability to engage intimately and personally with the person and presence of God. And you know what's challenging, and I think about this all the time in my own uh, worship when I come in on a Sunday, is that Sunday can cover up those things so perfectly. But friends, if we don't learn how to worship here, together in this space, around uh, people of like-mindedness, then what happens, and I know you've been practicing your Sabbath, what happens on a Friday night or a Saturday morning when you sit on your own or you sit with your family? Do you know how to engage in private praise and adoration and exaltation of the Creator God? One of my favorite, favorite, and most challenging, I think, um, lines from a book I'm going to read from later by Tozer. But he says this. He says, the church that can't worship must be entertained. He saw two options before us. 
Do we choose to continue in the passivity of our culture, the kind of Huxleyan approach and be made numb by our own consumption? I'm just going to take what makes me feel good. Or do we accept an invitation that is offered us over and over again throughout the Bible? In the Psalms particularly, I think of Psalms 95, come, come, let us worship and bow down. Come, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are his people. Or Psalms 100, come before him with joyful song, shout to the Lord, all the earth, worship him with gladness. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people. This is what worship invites us into. Come, Come and find rest. Come and find identity. Come and find truth. Come and worship the living God and in doing so know who you are and what it is you were created for because where the world offers us passive, inert entertainment that cannot lead to anything meaningful, godly worship offers us firstly a chance to experience something truly real. One of the scholars I read put it like this, worship is a deliberate and disciplined adventure into reality. Worship is a disciplined and diligent adventure into reality. Here's why. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 19. This is the moment where Jesus is entering back into Jerusalem. In your Bible, it might be titled The Triumphant Entry, but really it's Jesus on a donkey. Um, and uh, we're going to pick up from verse 36. It says, And as he went along, people spread their coats on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the mountain of olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This moment has always been so striking to me. Here you have the skeptical Pharisees kind of trying to silence the extravagant worship of the people. And Jesus responds with this somewhat, I mean, it's kind of an iconic phrase. It's puzzled me for years. If they keep quiet, the rocks will cry out. What is Jesus referring to here? There is an eternal creation narrative that is breaking out on earth once again. A new reality that he is bringing to pass with his very death and resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the reality that you and I are invited into, where you and I can partake in the remaking of creation, where our worship joins in with all that God has made where we begin to commune personally with God, where God's time and hours intersect. And I talk about it as as experiencing reality because worship in this moment is Jesus showing us a symbol of what was always intended, all of creation worshiping its creator. And it's this miraculous, life-changing thing that happens 
When everything that God created is reoriented in the direction that it was intended for. And something happens in our souls when we echo with all that is singing the praises of God. Think about John's vision in the book of Revelation where he sees the heavenly hosts singing holy, holy, holy. And I imagine it on a Sunday when we come together and we join in worship. Suddenly the eternal song is breaking into the temporal one and we are colliding with this epic everlasting narrative. The divine and the human meet. And it's in these moments of worship that we experience something of an everlasting story from the birth of the world through all eternity. N.T. Wright did a series of sermons quite a few years ago on worship, but it always struck me he spoke about public praise, okay? What we do when we gather as the sign and the means of the new creation, Praise, singing, worshiping, all of which represents, in his words, the Christian equivalent of the cloud by day and the fire by night. Think about that for a second. What did those things represent? They represented this physical symbol that the presence of the covenant God had come to dwell amongst his people. And as we sing, as we offer our words of praise, as we read the Psalms, we become the means of anticipating that complete restoration. And in worship, friends, the eternal reality is being remade within us. It's like God is knitting that eternal story back into the depth of our souls again. But it's not just in our minds or our souls. It's in our very physical being. We are strange creatures, I'm sure you've done enough of the practices to realize this connection we have between our our physical bodies and what we know to be true. But think about it when you sing. It's this moment where your mind, where some sort of cognitive thought is taking place, and that is being pushed into the chambers of your body, and then sound is being produced out. It's, it's, It's incredible. It's like your very flesh and blood are now participating in a truth that you know about God. There is a physical reality, which means when we worship God, it is not just mentally, it is with our very bodies. And the Bible is filled with this. Unfortunately, we lose a lot when things are translated into English. Um, But there's a physicality about our worship. So one of the words that is used over and over again in Hebrew um, for worship is a word that actually means to prostrate, to lie down, to bow before Uh, The word blessing, it means to kneel. The word thanksgiving means to raise your hands. And so all of these things, worship, blessing, thanksgiving, have corresponding physical actions innate to them. And so when we talk about pushing back the tides of entertainment and consumption in the church, it's not just a mental thing. It is a physical, tangible way in which we engage with that. Our bodies become the means of cultivating this new reality. Does that make sense? 
Now, I know some of us would err on the side of non-physical worship. So you just kind of want to sit there and, and allow the words to sink in. And I get it. The thought of laying down in church is like yikes to you. Um, nervous giggles. I get it. Um, and, and hear me, I am not, I am not dictating um, a physical demonstration. I don't think it's always needed. But I do want to be bold enough to ask the question— Can it be considered praise in the biblical sense if it only ever engages my mind? Step back for a moment and imagine I was talking to you about my relationship with my husband, the uh, handsome gentleman who was up here earlier. And, you know, I'm I'm describing our relationship. We've been together um, almost 11 years this year, married for six and, um, you know, we are, we are so in love. We are so passionate about each other on like, a, on like a deep cognitive level. Like our minds are just so passionate. Um, but, but, you know, we just, neither one of us are really like demonstrative. We don't really believe in kind of physical affection. So, you know, kissing, holding hands, anything intimate, like that's just not a part of our marriage. We have the kind of, I think about it as like I Love Lucy marriage, you know, like two twin beds um, and the light, you know, night dear, lights go off. Um, And uh, okay, if I describe that to you, hopefully, right, you would think, I think there's something wrong with their marriage, (laughs) right? Okay, good. Um, I don't know how things operate up here in Portland. Maybe that's totally normal. Um, And yet how often do we only offer God our mental affection, It's like everything else in our lives is sort of set aside, but God, I will give you my cognitive affection. And I think unfortunately, specifically with worship, so much of the practice of worship, our posture, how we engage in it, has been overly determined by church culture, um, maybe specific church movements that you grew up in. That determines what I'm comfortable with rather than what we see biblically, which is pretty crazy. Think about that story of David. We kind of, you know, I'll become more indignified than this. No, 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 no. Think about that. Think about becoming completely undignified because you are so enraptured with the presence of God. I mean, that is, that blows my mind. That stretches every ounce within me. I'm not sure I'm ready to say that. And yet we see that in the word of God. And so here's the invitation to a deliberate and disciplined adventure into reality. That's what we are invited into really briefly. But one of my favorite examples of the way in which our our physical bodies engage with worship is a few chapters in Luke earlier. Um, Let me just read it really quickly because I love this. Luke 7. We won't have it up there because I wasn't planning on reading it, but man, it's it's beautiful. It's the account of the sinful woman um, anointing Jesus's feet And here's this room of people. You can imagine the Pharisees sitting there in judgment, in ridicule. And she comes in. It says, verse 37, a woman who'd lived a sinful life. She comes in. She says she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them and she poured perfume on them. You know, in every account of this story, someone is sitting there ridiculing her extravagance. 
someone is sitting there in judgment of her gift. But look what Jesus says. Skip down to verse 44. He turned to the woman and said, and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her hair and she wiped them with her hair or tears. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. That, to me, is one of the most perfect examples of when love and adoration overflowed in this woman and she set aside the opinions of others. She set aside the scoffing. Can you imagine her walking into that room and the judgment of those around her? And she brought everything that she had and she gave it to Jesus in adoration, in worship, and in praise. Sometimes worship feels costly. Sometimes it's hard Sometimes it is an uphill practice, even for me, and I love worship. It is sometimes like, I, I know this is important, but I know I'm called to pour everything out. And when I do, when I experience the presence of the living God, when I allow that reality, when I am at the feet of Jesus and the tears well up inside of me, I no longer want to just be entertained. I don't want to sit passively by. I want to engage fully and completely in the reality that the living God is here in my midst. I could get caught up there forever, but I won't. I promise I have a timer running. All right, if experiencing God's eternal reality is the antidote to entertainment, then I'd like to propose that the antidote to the spirit of skepticism is holy expectation. Turn with me to John 4. This one should be up on the... This is uh, the moment where Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, you might be familiar with this passage. He's, he's talking about the idea of the spring of water welling up and those who drink from it will have eternal life. If you know this passage, we're going to pick up in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, John 4 verse 19, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. Then the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you. A time is coming and has now come. Holy expectation in worship. I was doing some reading recently on um, the kind of temple or tabernacle motifs and themes throughout the Bible. And um, 
In many ways, this is what Jesus is referring to, this idea that um, in the past, worship was limited. It was, it was designed for a specific place, the temple in Jerusalem. But I want to unpackage this kind of narrative arc within the scriptures because I think it helps us understand, or at least it helps us cultivate within us a holy expectancy in worship. So Genesis 1 and 2, don't get afraid, I'm going to do this fast. Um, Genesis 1 and 2, it's, it's the creation of a temple, right? It's this heaven and earth dwelling where we, Adam and Eve, are the image bearers of God, the priests of God. They are offering it up to him. They're communing with him without separation, um, without sin. And then unfortunately, the fall, and that communion is, uh, is severed. But God in his faithfulness, Exodus 40, the narrative arc continues, and he calls the people of Israel together, and they build the tabernacle. And it's this kind of microcosmos, if you will, um, where, where once again, there's this communing with God. There's this little creation, a sign and foretaste of what's to come. The difference is here, who has access to the presence of God? Only the priests, Aaron and his sons. They're the only ones allowed to commune with God. And for the rest of the Old Testament, this is the habit of worship for the people of Israel. But what does Jesus say in John 4? A time is coming and has now come. And finally, Paul finishes this narrative, Ephesians 1 and 2, where he says God's purpose was to unite all things, heaven and earth, once again, Think about that image in Genesis. Jews and Gentiles coming together as one body. And Ephesians 2, 22, in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Friends, this means that you and I are the new temples of God. Now, none of us live through the separation that the people of Israel would have, that kind of defining line. But just imagine that change taking place. The, the Samaritan woman having been told her whole life that she cannot worship where she worships, that it isn't right, that the spirit was only accessible by the priests, and then suddenly the prophecy of Joel is fulfilled. And the spirit of God is poured out on all be- people. And now not just Aaron and his descendants, But you and I are a royal priesthood, a holy people set apart, able to bear his image. And as I was studying and and, and kind of praying for this time, I found this connection so helpful in understanding worship and what it should create within us. You see, not only that God would choose to once again dwell in us and work through us, but surely being in the presence of God should allow us to view things differently. The problem is, and I I feel this, sometimes I want the old temple. I just want someone to kind of mediate my spirituality for me. Just want to show up on a Sunday, have someone kind of do their thing, and then I get to walk away feeling like I've done my religious duty. But friends, Jesus is offering us something far more compelling, something far more profound. 
Think about the book of Acts, okay? This group of Jewish believers who would have lived their whole life being separated from the holy of holies. And suddenly the curtain is torn. And that's just not symbolic for them. That is the actualized promise that for the first time they are going to get to experience the presence of God. And we have that every single day. I am... I went to Jewish school growing up. Um, I I grew up in South Africa, and it was still apartheid in those days, um, which means most of the schools were segregated. And so my parents, if you know them, they're slightly eccentric, but they didn't want us to go to an all-white school. Um, But the only option was for us to go to a entirely Jewish, Orthodox Jewish school uh, where we learned Hebrew. We were the only non-Jewish kids, but they thought it would be really good for us to be the minority, Uh, which, I mean, honestly, it was an amazing experience. But I can remember my first trip to temple. I was probably, I don't know, eight or nine. And we get to meet the rabbi. And obviously, I didn't grow up in a Jewish tradition. So this was like, you know, so cool. I mean, the temple was beautiful. We met in a school hall. I wanted to convert. Their church was way cooler. And uh, I just remember the curtain, and it was this, like, thick, red, heavy separation. And you just knew that was not an area for you to go. Um, the, the funny end of the story is that in all—I um, genuinely was not trying to be snarky, but I asked the rabbi in question time who sewed the curtain back up because I heard that it had been ripped. Yeah, um, big trouble. Every Jewish kid knows. I remember being in the principal's office, and, you know, this was a very serious offense. I was almost suspended um, for my actions. Um, But they were gracious towards the um, heathens in the midst. Um, Anyways, I still remember that curtain— Okay, I remembered the sense of like this far and no further. And then I think about the reality of these early believers. For the first time, I'm going to get to hear the voice of God. For the first time, he's going to speak to me. Imagine the awe and wonder and expectation, maybe a little bit of terror. Which I think begs the question, when you and I walk in on a Sunday for a worship service, what do we expect is going to happen? Is there anticipation? Are you listening? What might God say? Friends, when we worship, do we allow him mental space? Do we ask the Spirit to speak to us? He is here. What about when I sing? Are the words just sort of circulating through me or am I allowing them to shape my mind, to transform my theology? Do I know how to just enjoy God in those public moments, but also in the private ones when I'm on my own? Do I know how to just be in his presence, unhurried, unrushed, Holy expectation within us says, I wonder what God is going to do today. It's not about hype. I hate that. It's not about hype. It's the simple, honest conviction that God is here and he is not silent. How many generations long for what we have access to now? How many generations long for the unhindered access to the, pro- the, the, the presence of God? 
They just wanted a sign and you and I are now the living signs of the new creation breaking in on earth. Worship is the demonstration that the covenant God has come to dwell amongst us. Let's not walk around unaware of the reality that we have received. Can I encourage us to reframe what we think about when we think about worship? The way in which it transcends our individualism. We join together one voice. Come, let us worship and bow down. The way worship requires a sacrificial offering sometimes. It asks us to be generous with our whole selves, heart, soul, mind, body. Sometimes I sing for the person next to me. They need to hear about God's faithfulness, about his goodness, about his grace. And I sing a little bit louder so that they know it in the depth of their soul. And sometimes I need you to sing for me. I need to be reminded that he is here and he is not silent. I need to be reminded that he is faithful, that he is good, that he loves me no matter what. I need to be bathed in the truth of the God I believe in. How do we push back the tides of entertainment and consumption in the church? We actively and earnestly engage and experience the reality of God. How do we combat secular cynicism and skepticism from being a part of our worship? Awe and wonder and expectation. Walk in on a Sunday. What might God do? That's what we are being invited into. It's not ceremony. It's not religious tradition in a negative sense. It's not routine. It's definitely not the uppers and downers of the Sunday service. It is a practice that has the power to transform your life. I want to take some time to worship together. I'm going to invite the team back up. Because honestly, there should be no other response to this. And I want to invite you to worship generously. To worship in view of the God who has come to dwell amongst you. Picture in your mind the heavenly hosts who are singing for all eternity of his holiness and join in their song. Join in the song of all creation that is crying out about their God who made them. Maybe you risk a little. Maybe you've never raised your hands in worship and tonight is the night where you go, you know what? He is worthy of more than just my mental cognition. He is worthy of every single faculty available to me. I want to read something over us, but as I do, can I I ask you... Maybe close your eyes. Just helps us focus. This is our invitation. God desires to take us deeper into Himself. We have much to learn about the Spirit. He wants to lead us on in our love for Him who first loved us. He wants to cultivate within us adoration and admiration of which he is worthy. He wants to reveal to each of us the blessed elements of spiritual fascination in true worship. He wants to teach us the wonder of being filled with moral excitement in our praise, entranced with the knowledge of who God is. 
He wants us to be astonished at the inconceivable elevation and magnitude and splendor of the Almighty God. There is no human substitute for this kind of worship, for this kind of spirit-given response to the God who is our creator and redeemer and Lord. We open our hearts to you this evening and we want to be filled with that awe and that wonder. The presence of the covenant God is here in our midst and he is not silent. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church give for more information. Thanks for listening.